Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I have a wide-ranging chat about investing and learning with Cole Smead, CEO of Smead Capital. We talked to Cole about reading, learning, the influence of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger on his thought process, Smead's value investing discipline and stock selection criteria, and much more. By the way, for those watching on YouTube, anyone who likes the video and sends us the correct answer to the question in the description below to our email address at excessreturnspod at gmail.com will be entered into a random drawing to win the Smead Capital hat highlighted in the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Smead Capital's Cole Smead. Hi, Cole. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So um, just out of the gate, I got a quick little story for you. So Jack and I last week actually met with a wealth planner out of Southbury, Connecticut. And we were doing lunch with these guys, great group of guys. Um, and we started talking about how they're building their models for their clients. And mm-hmm. so we get into the discussion around um, what type of, how, how, basically how they're getting their value exposure. And you know, they were talking about a couple of funds and then they're like, yeah, and, and Smead Value is one of our core holdings. And we're like, no way. We're like, we're having Cole Smead on the podcast <laughs> next week. So that was really cool, uh, quite a coincidence. But what they also did is they gave me this sweet hat. I don't know if you can see it here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Those, are, those are becoming famous around the country. So this is like high quality merch here you got going on. It's really, it's really good merch. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's called D Huts, and they're based out of the Bay Area. And I actually have a friend who has an equity interest in it, and they've been a great partner. And we got all kinds of hats, so I'll have to send you guys a couple other colors since you guys can have some fun with it. So, thank you very much. I got, I got my high quality hat rack right back there. I don't know if you can see it. So this is uh, gonna make. I think it's gonna make it on there. Nice. So thanks for jumping on with us today. We're gonna talk um, about your investment strategy, the markets, and a bunch of other stuff. But we like to kind of start these conversations with something that's maybe a little bit more unique to the individual. And one of the things that I learned about you in, in prepping for this is that, you know, you're, um, a, you love to read books. You're a big advocate of reading all types of books, not just investing books. You actually have a podcast um, where you talk to authors that have written books that have influenced you. And so, I don't know, I, th- I think to start, and I think our, audi- our audience in particular will, will really appreciate, you know, what books have influenced you the most? What would you consider the core books that have helped shape your investing philosophy? It's a great question. And I'll, um, I did put this in my, my list when I was thinking about this, but, um, you know, I, I, I would always recommend to people, um, go read Robert Hagstrom's book, Investing the Last Liberal Art. And if that doesn't kind of awaken your mind for how, um, you know, reading about a myriad of things, not, you know, I, I think the biggest trap for people in our industry or people, you know, think of your guys' podcast as an example, um, is where people get trapped into reading all these investing books. And the problem is that doesn't give them the other mental models that Charlie Munger talks often about. Okay. So, um, so I always just, I always throw that book out. It's a great book. Investing is a lifetime of learning. Um, when it comes to the books that are really, you know, shaped how I think, I think of people, I'm kind of like you're, you know, as a, as a big history buff, I'm like a big, big man or big woman historian, right? I love leading characters. And so I always think of books. So like for me, books that, that I was, as I was thinking about this come to mind, you know, the Bible, there's great investing uh, truths in that. Just go read the parable, economics, of the parable, uh, which is a great book out there. Short history, financial euphoria by JK Galbraith, um, the intelligent investor by Graham. 
uh, How to Be a Stock Market Genius by Greenblatt. If you're young and you want to think about making a lot of money, go read Greenblatt's book. Um, Psychology in the Stock Market by Dreamin. I think nobody even remembers who David Dreamin is at this point. That's my age. I'm, I'm 39, right? So I, I, I think that's a wonderful book. Um, Marty Whitman, The Aggressive Conservative Investor. Um, Marty was a great teacher of balance sheet issues, which is something we could talk about later. 100 to 1 in the Stock Market by Thomas Phelps. Money Mind at 90 by Phil Caray. Um, and then, and lastly, Buffett's mentioned this, but uh, Phil Fisher's book, Pass the Wealth Through Common Stock. So I really think about those and, you know, those books, the principles out of them and the cumulative effect they've had on me as an investor. That's a great set of titles. And it's, it's a weakness of mine. I, I don't do a good job. I have tons of books. I read like the first couple of chapters and then I seem to like lose, <laughs> not lose motivation, lose interest. I don't know what it is, but that's you've kind of motivated me to dust off some of my, some of my books here and, and start learning again. So thank you. I appreciate that. So um, this is interesting. On your website, Smead Capital's tagline is fear stock market failure. Mm -hmm. And to me, I'm not sure what to think of that. So I wanted to ask you, like, what, what, do you, what does that mean? Well, yeah, so we're, um, uh, I, I think one of the issues with a lot of investors, and, and, and this is an industry-wide plague, um, and we really try to fight this problem internally with ourselves, is everyone wants to be a great investor. But who wants to be a good business person? And I point that out because Buffett says, hey, I'm a, I'm, I'm a better investor because I'm a business person, and I'm a better business person because I'm an investor. So that, that title, where did that come out of? Well, there's a book, shock, right? Um, uh, it's called uh, Building, a, I think it's, remember correct, uh, Building a Story Brand. Um, and in the book, uh, that, that it goes into talking about how you want to present the problem of your brand. So when, we, when I think about investing in our, in our world, there are a lot of people out there that have actually never made money in stocks. I mean, think of this whole Robin Hood. I know you guys had Spencer on to talk about his book about GameStop. Um, I mean, this whole thing, we've got another generation of Americans that have never made money in stocks now. And that's actually pretty common. Who ends up making a lot of money in stocks is long-term holders and insiders. Um, and everyone else twos and froze in between that. Um, also, you guys have probably seen this. Have you ran into advisors that have never picked a manager that has done well against their benchmark or whatever they're gonna do? So fear, stock market failure is the idea that people are failing or not succeeding at what they're trying to attain in the stock market, okay? Now, we have a discipline. We've done this, you know, Bill started doing this back. My dad uh, did this starting in 1993. So we've had almost 30 years of success in the stock market with our discipline to where we're saying, hey, listen, we know this is scary to a lot of people. We know most people fail in this. Um, we know fr markets are frustrating. And at the same time, despite the fact that those fears are present, you know, we can produce success in this. And so I just say that because if you don't tell people what their problem is, why would they need you, right? If you say, hey, everyone's gonna have success in stocks, great, why do I need a stock picker? And so the big idea was, let's just talk about the problem straight up, let's deal with it on its face, and that's the kind of investors we advise. I see, I see, that makes total sense to me now, now that I heard you explain it. Um, you know, one of the interesting things with your firm is you guys moved from Seattle Mm -hmm. which is, you know, maybe there's tons of money managers there, but you moved to Phoenix, Arizona, uh, maybe almost two and a half years ago now, something like that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, has, has, one, what went into that decision? And two, have you benefited from as a firm by that move? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, I would say one, back to the whole idea of business people and investor. In, in the investment business, people would say, don't do that, that's risky, you know, you could get fired for that, Morningstar might flag you, and all kinds of stuff like that, okay? And the problem, though, is what benefits the business was a question, and, and we felt it hugely benefited our business. 
Um, you know, my dad is 65 years old. Um, I kind of know what older people like doing. Uh, they tend to like to be in warmer climates. I'm, I'm 39. I'm going to be a 65-year-old person someday. And what am I probably going to do? So the, we were kind of playing long games in our business. Um, also, Seattle didn't have a lot of financial services type jobs we could hire from. So I say that because there were obvious business conclusions based on that. But I think what we got after the decision and we learned was that we, it actually really helped us dealing with what came out of the pandemic. As an example, Arizona was one of the first states to reopen. As you think about all the states, you know, Texas and Florida went earlier. Arizona was earlier. So we got to see what life was like after the pandemic earlier than people sitting in L.A., San Francisco, New York, Boston, et cetera. Um, do I think that was a huge advantage from an information perspective? Unequivocally. We knew that people were hiding out in Chicago for over a year here, for example. So, so that, I, I think that really benefited our firm, even though there was risk from a pure business sense. You know, you mentioned your, your dad. And before we were um, recording, you had mentioned you watched our latest episode with um, Jeff Mellencamp and how uh, Jeff's dad, Ron Mellencamp, who was a great value stock picker, and your dad both went through the same sort of training um, program in their early days at um, Smith Barney. And I, I find you mentioned some other names too. And that's a very, very interesting. I think there's an interesting storyline there that I might even explore. Um, in the future, but I wanted to ask you, you know, you've been working with your dad since 2007. So I'm sure, um, every day is a learning experience for you and, and your colleagues at the firm. But if you could kind of pinpoint like the three biggest lessons or the one biggest lesson, however you want to take it that you've learned from your dad, what would that be? Well, I, I think a lot of just like growing up, uh, you know, so for example, you, you guys, I, I assume you appreciate the story. So we, we drive into a small town. Okay. So we're on a family road trip in the summer. And we get into a small town and dad would always ask us the same question. He said, okay, guys, in this small town, what business do you want to own? And as a kid, you know, when you're young, you're like, oh, I want to own the toy store. Or I want to own, you know, whatever business that sounds fun to a kid. And he would say, no, no, you want to own the local beer distributor and you want to own the local Coca-Cola bottler. And just the repeatability of the customer was something like early as a kid, how simple is a business for the owner? Um, and so I'll never forget that. I mean, that's, that's completely ingrained in my mind. Now, you know, as you get older, as an investor, you understand that to be true. And they, that is true, by the way. But then you have to ask, and ask the question, okay, at what price? And I think the other thing I really learned from my dad was, uh, particularly in high school, um, you know, the tech bubble took place my sophomore year of high school. And so here I am. I'm a kid who's uh, grown up hanging out with dad in brokerage offices my entire life. I thought it was the coolest thing to go to my dad's office, sit there and work with him. Now I, I just do it every day. Shows you I've never really grown up, to be honest. Um, but uh, but I, I remember you know sitting in those offices with him and in the tech bubbles raging, and he would tell me about what's going on and we would talk about what's going on. And I had a, I had a high school teacher uh, my sophomore year who was literally gambling on tech stocks in between class. And since he knew my dad was you know picking stocks, he wanted to talk to me because I'm, I'm like the stock picker's kid. And um, I, I remember, I remember, I won't say his name, but I, I would tell him, you know, Mr. I'll use Mr. B. I'd say, Mr. B, you know, you, you go away from this one. You, you could just do too much damage. Again, stock market failure, right? I was telling him, hey, fear stock market failure. You could get crushed. And the reality is he, he did. He got really damaged. So I, I'll never forget that. Manias, you know, I mentioned Gal Galbraith's book earlier, uh, Short History of Financial Euphoria. Manias can do torture on people. Um, in, in the Charlie Munger sense, it's ignorance avoidance. Most of investing success isn't doing things right. It's not doing stupid things. 
It's interesting, that story about going to the town and finding the best business. Like we hear stuff like that a lot. Like we, we had Jim O'Shaughnessy on the podcast and he was talking about, you know, when Patrick was a kid, he would always say whenever Patrick had a question, he would point to the bookshelf and he would say, go figure it out. And like that had an impact on Patrick, like for his whole life. And it sounds like the same thing with you seeing the business, you know, going to the town and figuring out the best business like that had a big impact even on what you're doing today. Agree. And, and I think, uh, you know, I, I also think there's ways that, um, you know, growing up in this discipline has also kind of changed me that, you know, if I I'll, I'll tell this joke teasingly, I'm 70 percent my father. I'm 30 percent my mother. Uh, the reason why I can tell I have 30 percent of my mother in me is because I'm actually listening to what you guys are saying. Okay? Um, so uh, that's a kind of, kind of a, a family joke. But but so I just say that because um, I, I can also see how, you know, I have a personality independent from my dad, even though I'm a lot like him. Um, you know, there's things that I've taken away for this. So like I, I study, I study investors and super wealthy people. I, that's one of my interests. I want to understand not only the types of businesses, but the types of people that create this kind of wealth because they are more random. And, and that's something that I think I've, I've really kind of taken on myself, even though to your point, all that is the blessing that's emanated from, you know, what my dad, uh, what my dad's done, what he's taught me, et cetera. And I, I can't understate that blessing for myself. I want to ask you a little bit about Buffett, but first I want to pivot back to Justin's question about books, because when I talk to people who are huge readers, there's sort of two different camps. One camp is, and I want to relate this to podcasts, like there's one camp that says, you know, now that I've got podcasts, like I don't read as many books, like I get a lot of the information from podcasts. And the other ones say you can never replace books. I'm still reading tons of books. And I'm just wondering where you are on that. Yeah, so it's a great question. So uh, <laughs> Munger talks about incentive structures and, and our podcast is actually an incentive structure. I know that sounds crazy to say. Um, but I looked and said, okay, uh, I, I think you know, in, in the investment business, um, there's good stock pickers out there. And what good stock pickers tend to do is they tend to be bad communicators, frankly. Like, you know, I'm good at picking stocks, leave me alone. I'm going to the ivory tower, you know, goodbye. Um, and I think that's a real danger because that doesn't make better shareholders out of the investors you work with, frankly. Okay? So I think we've always pr prided ourselves on our ability to communicate. We write a lot. I would say that our writing is, you know, taking our cognitive thoughts and actually like organizing those, fleshing those out, being able to communicate those other people through the written word. Your hand makes you organize your, your brain. Um, but then the second part of the podcast is we have to commit to reading a lot and doing this lifetime of learning that I talked about earlier. How do we commit to that? Well, doing two books a month with authors and getting an hour to an hour and 20 minutes in and asking the question like you're their A student and really digging in and quoting the sections out of the book, that's learning. That's the kind of stuff that I didn't do in college like I should have, but I do now because I love the subject matter. And to call a spade a spade, I can make a lot of money you know, being a good student today. I know you're a big follower of Buffett. You know, we've, we've talked to a lot of different people on the podcast and, you know, we talk to a lot of individual investors and, you know, they'll always tell you the lessons they've learned from Buffett. And some of those are probably the right lessons and some of those are probably, you know, they've learned the wrong lessons from Buffett. So I'm wondering if you could just talk about maybe what you think the biggest lessons people should learn from Buffett are. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a question that when I see some of the stuff on social media, when I look at Twitter, oh gosh, there's such bad stuff out there, guys. It's crazy. So, so um, I see the, just the most cliche stuff with Buffett and it really, it just kind of makes me scratch my head. Um, it's almost kind of like, uh, it's, it's like quoting Confucius. What, what's the context? You know, it doesn't make any sense to me without the context. So I say that because I look at Buffett's life. I really like studying, like, so Alice Schroeder's book, Snowball, is like, oh, such a great book on Buffett's life, okay? 
because it makes you think about the totality of it. Um, I'll never forget when he was invited to go to the New York Stock Exchange floor, and I can't remember the gentleman of the uh, the uh, gentleman Goldman Sachs at the time, Sidney, and I'm forgetting his last name, was like the managing director of Goldman Sachs. He really saved the firm post the the Great Depression and brought their rep- uh, the reputation back. And he asked Buffett what stock he liked. And in the book, you just know right at that moment, this person, Buffett, is going, oh my gosh, someone values my opinion. And you can just kind of see his passion just absolutely scream out of Schroeder's writing. So I, I think about that. I think about in 1969 when he closed his partnership, okay? Um, I, I, I don't really see that written off often about. Why did he close his partnership? Why in 1969? I actually, here's the weird part, guys. I think I can explain it. Because again, back to being the student. You wanna be a student of Buffett. So um, real quick. In 1969, we had the highest household ownership of common stocks in U.S. history up to that point. That's St. Louis Fed data, by the way. It goes back to 52. Um, and he's, he, he's, he's got quotes that you could read out of those books. He said, listen, there's charlatans on Wall Street. I want nothing. I want no part of this. Okay. So he closed the partnerships because he assumed stock returns were going to be low. Now, by the way, in real terms, he was right. Stocks lost money in real terms during the 1970s. Okay. Now, here's the interesting part. If you study Buffett, he was still foolish to close the partnerships because go look at his return in the 1970s. It was his single best relative decade of all time, okay? But he was saying, I don't wanna have to deal with the investors. I just wanna have captive capital, AKA Berkshire Hathaway. He actually gave people three options. Take it to Berkshire instead, or go to the Sequoia Fund, which launched in July of 1970, and go to my friend, Bill Ruane, and, and Bill was a good stock picker, or lastly, Go buy muni bonds because he felt that muni bonds enhanced the returns then. And why I find that interesting is 1969 was that for Buffett. 1969 for me was 2021. Okay. I, 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 we, we, by the time we got done with 2021, I could tell people straight faced, I'd much rather own a 10 year treasury to begin 2022 than own the S&P 500 for the next decade. Okay. Which is crazy to say. Again, we're stock pickers. So I, I think about that, those life lessons out of Buffett way more than any of those kind of like, well, here's what he did in the last three years. Because again, you're trying to understand the totality of what he dealt with. Um, Buffett owned oil stocks in the 1970s, for example. He, he used to own things like advertising agencies in, in the 60s. Um, understanding the seasons of his investing, I think was more, far more important than understanding his principles of investing because you can, you can synthesize more out of the seasons. Yeah, your, your point about 2021 had me thinking back to the, the Mullenkamp interview as well because he was talking about, I had made the point, you know, when, when, you want, when it's time to buy in the market, you're not going to want to. I had made that to him and he had said, well, actually it works in reverse too. When it's time to sell in the market, you're not going to want to either. And that kind of gets to the end of 2021 where everybody was also excited and like that, that was not the time to be buying, you know, stocks, particularly in the growth area. Well, I agree. And I, by the way, every time I talk to a stock picker, okay, and I say, I pose that question, even right now, okay, if I pose them, hey, guys, here's the deal, 10-year treasury or S&P 500, 10 years, you just got to hold it and sit on it. I mean, I get paid 350 right now in the 10-year treasury. And I would probably say the, the, the likely return of the S&P 500 will be one, maybe 2% negative over 10 years, okay? I'm using that St. Louis Fed data, again, that I mentioned from 1969. 2021 is the highest it ever been. The 10-year the forward uh, correlation coefficient, if you take the 10-year forward S&P 500 returns and use the correlation coefficient of those two variables, it's negative 0.85. So is it perfect? No. Is it really explanatory? It is. Um, so I just point that out because uh, let's say I'm wrong. Let's say S&P makes 2%, a 3 to 4% swing from what I told you. 
I make 350 on a 10-year. And by the way, inflation damages both of them. So when I hear stock pickers say, oh, I'm still betting on stocks because of inflation, um, inflation affects everything. How does that change the, the, the volatility is lower in the 10-year treasury? And the outcome is known. Those are variables you have to account for. Yeah, and to your point, I mean, obviously the bar is rate, you know, when rates are going up on bonds, the bar for stocks is going up as well. Um, you know, you've got that risk-free money you can get. Um, thinking about your overall approach, when we talk to value investors, we, they typically fall in three camps. You know, we've got kind of the Graham type guys that are really the deep, deep value guys. We've got the Buffett guys that are maybe quality at a good price. And then we've got the Bill Miller guys, and that approach hasn't been going so well, which is basically I'll discount the cash flows back. And whatever, whatever they are, I can consider myself a value investor. How do you classify yourself sort of on that scale? It's a great question. And by the way, back to my life, when I got out of college in 06, I would have died for a job with Bill Miller, just so we're all on the same page. I mean, that would have been like, that would have been like sitting at the right hand of God at that time. And, and by the way, I, 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 Bill's a brilliant thinker, and I think the world of me runs a different discipline, but I, I admire the man a lot, and I, I respect him a lot. So I really think about our approach as like a classic value or contrarian approach. Um, I mentioned Dreaming earlier, Psychology in the Stock Market. I mean, you want to talk about a great book. I, I think it hasn't been in print for a while. I think if you go buy an old copy, you'll probably double your money in five years just owning the book. So I'm giving like some good at book investment advice, I guess, is a way of putting it. But I just say that because um, in that book, uh, in that book, he, he talks about the psychology so much of this. He talks about it as a, a red room and a green room. And he says that you go into the green room and it's like so fun and, you know, the chips, the, uh, the red room, the, the chips are flowing, the alcohol's there, the girls and, and all the attractive people are there. And it's just you're having the time of your life. But then you look at the odds at the table and they suck. You're not going to make any money. The house has the advantage. And so then you, so you travel across the green room. And in the green room, it's boring. Big chip stacks, though. Talk to the dealer. You're like, wow, the odds are in the advantage of the, of the player. And you're looking at the players on the table. It's the best of the best, the kind of people we want to respect and, 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 and copy and so on and so forth. And he says the weirdest thing is you go back up to your room. You go to get your chip stack. And then right as you come down to the green room, you suddenly turn right. And you walk into the red room. <laughs> That's the human proclivity. So I say that because we're contrarians at our deep and darkest core. Um, that's just kind of who we are. That's how, how we think about. And I would say that's a very Keynesian contrarianism. John Maynard Keynes said investing is the only sphere of life where victory, security, and success goes to the minority and never to the majority. And so that's how we really play this. Now, to give you kind of basic metric view, uh, price to free cash is the, one of the greatest things I could ever value a business on. But I think as we go forward, like to your point about um, people using book to just decide book is a worthless endeavor, right? Oh, I got it on a pr cheap price to book multiple. But, well, that doesn't tell you what the book is going to do. It doesn't tell you about the future of the business, to your point about kind of like the Munger Buffett approach. And so I, I think we think a lot about the return on equity of the business and the book multiples we pay and how does that look relative to things like free cash flow and earnings, okay? Um, that's, that's what we're really doing here. And I think what people have forgotten about is when they talk about asset light, asset light is already determined in things like return on equity. I'll give you an example. Let's say we go out and look at, say, a company like Google. Google's been running like 30% return on equity, for example. Now, by the way, the prior history of Google was 15% return on equity prior to that. So the pandemic uh, in the last couple of years have really changed the return on equity. Now, if you're an asset light business, you're more likely to be able to sustain high levels of return on equity. So when I hear stupid things, I mean, this is really stupid, by the way, um, uh, and I'll categorically uh, make fun of this, but the stupid thing I hear is like, oh, but you don't know how many intangibles they have on their balance sheet. 
Well, if those intangibles are driving income or free cash flow, guess what? That's already captured in return on equity because the book value being lower means the return on equity is going to be higher. And we commonly hear that's a fallacy. That's a fallacy. If you're going to talk about, yes, you could adjust book multiples, but here's the catch. You have to adjust for the return on equity as well, right? They're not independent variables from each other. Right, that makes sense. You know, that, that's a big thing in our world of quant investing. A lot of people have been looking at is this idea of intangibles. And then some of the, some of the metrics are completely unaffected by intangibles. And some of the, some of the metrics like book or PE, you know, can have significant effects. So like the, a lot of people, I guess, have been using composites to try to, you know, take that out. But it, it's, it's an interesting world now where intangibles have become so much more important, particularly for, you know, the Facebooks and the FANG stocks of the world. Yeah. Well, and, and I think, you know, beyond that, you have to think about it too, is you still have to ask the question, do those intangibles sustain? And, and by the way, what we're really talking about is we're talking about asset light. That's an OPEX business, right? Their expenditures are operations versus a capital intensive business is a CapEx business. And, and that is, in my mind, a subtle difference because, again, that's just the difference of where it lands on the, on, on the income statement versus the balance sheet. I, I just think about those things differently. And, and, and therefore, you just gap is where you start. It's not where you end. And I, people, therefore, have to be an investor to understand that. But I think this overemphasis on asset light, it's causing damage. It's not helping investors right now. As you guys can see in returns, capital intensive businesses are crushing asset light businesses. Yeah, cer certainly in recent years they have been. Um, I want to ask, whenever we talk to discretionary investors, I always like to think about the starting point of their process because, you know, there's so many stocks out there and like getting them down to the number of stocks you can analyze, I think is probably a challenging thing and, and different people do it different ways. How do you think about that? How do you think about getting it down to the companies you really want to dig into? Well, it's a great question. So all, all, we run all of our businesses through our eight criteria and, and, and to, Bill's, uh, to, to honor Bill, Bill created this di that discipline back in 1993. Okay, so um, now to your question, what would cause us to take a company through that eight criteria and kind of start that process for us? Um, the most common is insider buying. We voraciously track insider activity. Um, we, we, we love that kind of data. So, I mean, I, I have a colleague, uh, one of our analysts, uh, he sends out every day like this insider screen. It's like the only thing we really screen on a regular basis is what's going on with the insiders. And so because now for another discussion, another day, um, but... I'm going to give a talk sometime in the next two years, maybe at our Investor Oasis that we do each February, but I'm going to give a talk where I explain that insider purchases and insider ownership is the bridge between the quality and the value factor, right? Kind of Cliff Asness's QMJ and the value factor, it is, it, 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 you know, to put it in, in, in uh, statistical parlance, it's the interaction effect, if you guys will, okay? Because when an insider purchases, they're telling you two things. A, they like the price. B, they like the capital structure, which capital structure would speak to a quality aspect about the business. So again, not another time for that, but that's why I think, you know, I, I, we'll sit in the office and Bill will turn to everybody and say, okay, if there's only one of our A criteria that you could have, which would it be? And the answer is insider buying or, or insider ownership because it says something about the owner and the buyer at that time that you have in common back to Munger's incentive structure, their incentive structure is aligned with you at that point. Yeah, you know, for there's, there's a lot of reasons insiders might sell. And, you know, some of those reasons are not necessarily negative about the business, but there's, there's really the reasons they would buy are all pretty much good reasons. So, you know, I would totally agree with you. That's a really good thing to look at. Well, and I'll give you a study that people should go check out. And um, there's a gentleman by the name of Luke DeVault and a couple other um, professors. Um, Luke's at Clemson. And um, they had a published paper out in the Financial Analyst Journal where their, their paper was, hey, let's look at insiders that are on multiple boards. 
and let's analyze when they sell, what does that say about the other stocks that they own as insiders, okay? And it's very interesting. So by the way, I'm totally cheating here. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna talk my own book. Luke's coming to our investor oasis in February. So we're gonna get to hear that up close and personal. And by the way, we'll put that out. So if that's something you guys wanna listen to later, I, I, we'd love to share that out. But I just pointed out because it's again, it's a way of thinking about Munger's incentive structures. If I'm not, if I'm selling this stock and I'm on the board of another stock and I'm not selling that, what does that tell you about what I think about the business? And what they found in their study is the longer you hold the, the securities that they don't sell, the alpha gets bigger. I want to ask you about international because, you know, one of the things we were talking before the podcast, one of the things I sort of recognize when we were talking is we haven't really had any inter international managers on. And, you know, I'm interested, you've talked about the metrics you guys follow. I'm interested how you think about translating that into the international world. I mean, is it very much you're using the same criteria or do you make adjustments as you go into the international world? Yeah, I mean, there's there's adjustments you have to make going internationally from an accounting perspective. I'll give you an example. We we own mall REITs in our U.S. equity portfolio, like Simon and Maestrich. Um, Gap Accounting carries you know real estate assets at cost. Whatever you bottom at is what they're carried at. Um, international financial reporting standards don't. Um, they they have to mark to market real estate assets. So when people say, "Gosh, you bought you know you bought the U.S. malls. Why didn't you buy anything in the international space? Why didn't you buy?" Clepier, why didn't you buy any of those international, you know, European mall REITs? And the answer is because it wasn't the same discount. Um, because of the mark-to-market aspect, you just didn't get the same price versus the opaqueness of GAP, US GAAP created way more questions around price. So I think that's something, and that's just a learned thing. You kind of learn what you need to know um, in international uh, markets tied to the accounting, but I don't think that's the biggest component. Um, think about it like this. I was born and raised in Seattle, Washington. I live in Phoenix, Arizona right now. So what do I know about the person that's been born and raised in places like Madrid or Munich or London? And the answer is I can't. And the biggest thing in our discipline, one of our criteria is strong insider ownership, preferably with recent purchases. You know, what we talked about with insider ownership and insider purchases is finding great insiders to be investors alongside of abroad, okay? So um, as, I, as, I, as I think about that, like we own a company called Bank Inter in Spain. Bank Inter was created by the Boten family. It's the same Boten family that also created Banco Santander. It's just that one part of the family made a lot of money in Bank Inter and one didn't make a lot of money in Banco Santander. So do I know much about Spanish culture outside of the few business trips I've done there? No, I don't have to because we have a great partner there. Um, there's other places like that. I mean, one of our newer investments, it's a, actually US listed as well as Nor Norwegian listed. You guys ever heard of the company Frontline, the oil tanker stock by chance? Um, uh, uh, John Fredrickson is the large capital allocator there. He is the guru. I mean, if, by the way, if you want to talk about someone you want to get on a podcast, this guy, I would die to listen to a podcast with him. There, another book uh, that you could read about him in, Dynasties of the Sea. Um, in fact, Dynasties of the Sea on the front cover, you'll see that Donald J. Trump has endorsed the book. Um, so, so I say that because Dynasties of the Sea will teach you about Fredrickson, but he's the best capital allocator in the oil tanker business. And I mean, he owns, he owns a lot of Frontline, and he's been out trying to consolidate um, a company called Euronav. He owns like 16% of Euronav, and then he's also been buying up a company called International Seaways. And so, you know, I, I, before a year ago, how much did I know about the oil tanker business? I knew nothing. I mean, I, I knew absolutely nothing. I knew a lot about John Fredrickson. I knew he was the right partner. And so his activity in the space caused us to want to learn a lot more about oil tankers. And so I think that insider ownership 
to teach you about what you need to know versus what they already know and you could take advantage of is a massive advantage as you go abroad. When you're talking about insiders, I was just thinking about management because, you know, that's one of the things as quant investors, we don't really, you know, care about. I mean, we care in terms of it generates results, but we don't ever talk to management. And, you know, thinking about that, like, I guess on some sides, you would say, like, talking to management is really important. You get a lot of details about the business. Other people might say, you know, well, talking to management, you just, they're just going to tell you what they want you to hear. You know, you don't really get much out of it. How do you think about that as like a discretionary investor, like the role of management and, you know, how much you want to get out of them? Yeah. So we actually think about it more like a quant would, to be honest. So, you know, you'll run into managers and be like, oh, you know, we're great poker players. You know, we sit down with management. We read them. I love playing poker, gentlemen. Um, and, and I think I'm a pretty good poker player, but I frankly think that's absolutely worthless when you're analyzing investments. And I say that because we're talking about big public companies. There's a lot of information on these businesses. And what they do in their decisions over time, um, that's going to teach you a lot more. There could be situations where you walk in and you have a new executive in a business and you might not know how good of a capital allocator they are, for example, or things of that nature. And you might want to understand how, what their framework is. That might be helpful. But a lot of times they're still going to communicate that in their quarterly calls. They're going to communicate that in what they're doing in the annual report, et cetera. So um, we just don't find a lot of value in that. For, for example, go back to our insider purchases. That tells you way more about what the executive thinks. That, and that's, that's something you can track, like a quant could track that, for example, um, versus sitting down and saying, oh, you know, I like the cut of their jib and... You know, they're well-educated. Yeah, they all are. <laughs> do, you, do you use momentum at all? Um, you know, some value investors will say, you know, I just want to buy cheap stocks. Others will say, well, I don't want to catch the falling knife, so I want to wait till like, momentum turns a little bit before I buy. Do you think about momentum at all in your process? I, I'd love to tell you that uh, God has blessed us with this great indicator that we just know when momentum is going to pick up. I've yet to find it. By the way, here's the worst part. So, you know, Asnes would say there's three factors in investing. Momentum. There is the value premium and there's QMJ, quality minus junk, or what we know as quality, okay? And momentum, in my mind, is like a yogiism, right? Yogi Berra, if he was you know, doing an investing podcast, he'd say, yeah, momentum, you either have it or you don't. <laughs> and that's the problem with it, right? It's like you either have it or you don't. Um, I would say the best investments of all time are ones that have absolutely no momentum. In fact, you wonder if it's ever going to stop precipitating down. And so I, I, I look at that as... You know, you just know the darker it looks, or as we say, like if you can't, if, if when you go to put the buy order in, you have trouble keeping your lunch down, it's probably an incredible buy. Okay, and you should be adding even more than that. But th that we don't really, we don't think of anything from a, a timing perspective. The only timing things we really have is the price we're paying and the insider activities of the business. Yeah, momentum is, is interesting because, you know, in theory, it sounds perfect. It sounds so easy. You know, it's like, obviously, why would I buy yeah. the stock that's going down? But when you get into the details of how to actually do it, you know, it's not, it's not that easy. I mean, you know, you can use momentum I to totally enhance agree. the process, but doing it in the real world is much harder than it sounds like on a sheet of paper. Even for the quants. I mean, to your point, I mean, there's eras where when momentum shifts, assness could get tarred and feathered. At the same time, it is a real factor. It's present in markets. And we just have no way of, you know, evaluating or valuing that in our discipline. I was looking at your Morningstar report before we came on, and you definitely have a focused portfolio, and you definitely have a lot of money in your top 10 positions. And I'm just wondering how you think about position sizing and, and how many stocks to hold. Yeah. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, so the, the way I think about concentration just at large is the older I get, the more I think, gosh, even like the 1940 Act mutual fund rules, or like we run a use that's out in Luxembourg for non-US investors. 
most of the diversification rules actually hurt investors. That's just my own two cents. Okay, now we have to abide by them. It's the law, etc. But I just pointed out because we, we we sit in the Charlie Munger camp of have very few eggs in the basket and watch the basket, and we really believe in that. Um, the fewer names we own, the more we're going to understand those businesses. The more we're going to focus on those businesses, the less risk we actually take for our, our investors. Um, when it comes to new names, just to kind of you know teach us practically, uh, teach you guys practically about our discipline. One or two percent on new names. We're very mechanical on that. Um, what's the big idea? The typical sin of a value investor is being too early, and therefore we tend to be ginger early on. Um, what would cause us to step up our investment early on on like a one or two percent position? Insider buying. Um, that would be a very quick thing to say, you know what, not only did we think it was cheap, but the insiders are stepping up in the stock as well. And so um, that, that would be what caused us to be more aggressive early on in a business. Um, a typical large weighting for us is 5 to 7%. Um, in this era, I told you how tough I think stock picking is going to be for broad, you know, broad, broad stock baskets using the S&P as an example. Um, we, we feel more comfortable being more concentrated than we even have in the last 10 years. Um, you know, we can't go above 50% of our portfolio and 5% or greater in our mutual fund, our U.S.-based mutual fund. So that's a restriction. Um, but I just say that because, again, where do we take risk? We, we take risk in things that we don't know as well as we think we do. Um, you know, that, that's, that's where we're less comfortable. One of the biggest issues I've always had as an investor is, is the idea of when to sell. Um, and I think for a lot of investors, that, that's a big problem. And, you know, part, for me, that's part of why I became a quant. So I always like to talk to people about kind of their, their thought process there. I mean, how do you think about selling? Do you sort of look at the criteria you had when you bought the stock and track that over time and say, is it still true? I mean, how do you think about your selling process? Yeah, we, we, it's probably the most probabilities based we get in our minds in thinking about things because you're trying to ask the question, what are the odds that it continues to outperform like it has? Like on a winner, that's what you're asking. What are the odds? Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll give you a big mistake on this. And, and um, this is a big mistake of ours. And we talk about this with investors. So this is, this is no new news to our, our investors. But um, so we own like 4% of our, our, our U.S. fund in um, uh, our U.S. portfolio in Starbucks at the, at the market bottom in 09. And it ended up becoming our best performing stock of 9, 10, and 11. And then in, in 2012, restaurant stocks in general got popular um, you know, the, the Paneras of the world were popular. McDonald's was popular back then. I think, you know, Shake Shack went public not that far after that. Um, and we looked and said, gosh, the, the, the business has done incredibly well. It got to about 7.8% of our portfolio at that time. And we asked the question, okay, let's say all these terribly bullish Wall Street analysts are right. Let's just assume they're right. So you're kind of like setting your probabilities based on the consensus. And the exercise we ran ourselves through is let's say they're right. How long would it take their super excited numbers that they think this company is going to grow at over the next five years for us to get to what we thought was a viable multiple on the stock, right? So the stock's going to go nowhere for years, right? And when do you get to that multiple? And we use the price earnings. We think Starbucks is viable at 20 times earnings or less. That We just we think that. That's how easy of a business it is. Also, they have negative tangible book value. So it's very hard to value it on a book basis because it's negative. You have to make a lot of adjustments. So... We looked out and said, okay, it would take five years of the stock going nowhere with these outlandishly bullish Wall Street estimates for us to get a buyable multiple again. So here's what we did. We sold roughly half our position back in, in, in 2012, okay? And we sold some more in the following year, okay? Now here's the weird part. We were wrong. It outperformed the most outlandish estimates of the Wall Street analysts that were all terribly bullish on the stock, okay? 
And so I say that because we left a lot of capital on the table, even though we owned it a lot longer than other value investors. I'll never forget when we bought that, people said Starbucks was a fad at the time. Oh, no one's going to have a $5 cup of coffee. Well, they're, they're paying eight bucks now. It's crazy. So I just say that because um, even when you set a probabilities-based outcome where you're trying to say, okay, let's use these very outlandishly optimistic people where the psychology is very rich, and let's try to use our own rational thinking to figure out when we'd want to be an owner again of this, um, we, 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 we were wrong. We were just wrong on that. So I just point that out because that's the kind of thinking we go through that. Now, let's go back to 2021 in comparison. Um, uh, you know, in 2021, we ran through some of the same exercises in businesses we own. Um, we sold Disney, for example, in 2021. Um, my dad had owned that stock since the 9-11 attacks. He bought it after the 9-11 attacks. Back to our contrarianism, right? Hey, no one's going to get on a plane for a couple weeks. Great. Disney, right? Um, we'd owned that for 20 years, roughly speaking, for investors um, in this discipline. And the idea at the time, the psychology was streaming is going to be the end all for Disney. Theatrical releases in theaters were going to be no longer, and streaming was going to be the end all. And Disney has great IP and content. Everybody knows that, though. That's not, a new, that's not a new piece of information for anybody. But the reality was streaming wasn't going to be profitable for years to come. But Disney had played up that story because they knew one group of people loved that story, Wall Street. Okay, So they played that up, and that gave them these 30, 35 times earnings baskets of valuations. And Disney is a quality business. It's a great business, but mature Great businesses like that can't sustain those kind of multiples on a price-earnings ratio basis or on a book multiple basis. And therefore, it looked like a ticket to hell. And by the way, ever since then, it's like, sucks to be Bob Chappick. Now, by the way, the chairman of the business at the time wasn't Bob Chappick. Uh, it, 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 it was who's now the CEO. So therefore, all, that, all those decisions going on at the time were the same people that are now running the business. And so I just point that out because... Um, you know, those euphorias and those manias, those aspects of that, we're, we just very much fear. It, it, it is like 99, but with different sets of circumstances. I would say that what we had in 21 was effectively the nifty 50 uh, mixed with the blue chip stocks that got expensive in the late 1990s. That's what we dealt with in 2021. And so I just say that because it was a lot easier in a mania to see that Disney always gets involved in manias. Disney was in the nifty 50 in 72. It got way overpriced in 99 and welcome to 2021. So those things were more easily identifiable and like Disney to set those odds. But we also sold long-term big winners like Accenture as well was a long-term big winner we sold back then. Um, so far we look right, but they could end up being Starbucks for us. And, and 10 years from now, we could say, gosh, we were just total idiots for doing that. Yeah, that, that Starbucks example made me think about what I think is the most important thing in investing, which is this idea of process versus outcome. And you know, it's, it's so hard, like you followed your process on Starbucks and maybe you didn't get the outcome you want, but it's very, very hard to continue to follow your process and understand that there's gonna be these, these mistakes you're gonna make that look like mistakes based on the outcome, but they're not really mistakes if you followed your process. And you know, that's something I struggle with and I think it's something a lot of people struggle with. When also, you, you, I think the most important thing, people always like, you know, so let's say I buy a stock for you guys. I'm your broker. I buy a stock and it goes down 15%. And you say, cool, look what you did. But, but that's actually not where the biggest danger in portfolio management is. Those are sins of commission, as Buffett says. It's sins of omission. It's your opportunity cost. What could you have done with the money? So Buffett's biggest sin of, of omission ever was actually Disney. Uh, he bought it 
um, the year after Mary Poppins came out, they were building what he called the Pirate Ride. If you want a great YouTube video, UNC Chapel Hill, I think it's like uh, 1996. He's talking to the business students. And he says, um, you know, I, I, I bought it. at 80, It was an $85 million market cap. He said, I, I paid five times ride. Now, Buffett, I mean, think about it. Buffett's not like you guys or me. Like, we actually have social lives, right? And we, we know people and we have friendships. Buffett didn't know it was called Pirates of the Caribbean because he'd never been there, my guess, you know, at that time. So he jokingly said it's paid five times ride. Well, you know, uh, uh, you wake up, you wake up one year later, and I think he had made 50% on his, his, his 5% uh, position, if I remember correctly, or five, $5 million investment, and he sold it. Okay, well, Disney got caught in the nifty 50, right? It was literally, it was, it was five years after he purchased it. Disney was at the peak of the nifty 50. Um, here's the crazy part. Back to sins of omission. Buffett made that sin of omission on Disney twice. Back to your point about analyzing process. Disney went back to Buffett's cost basis at the bottom in 74. And Warren Buffett never came back to the stock. So when he did this video, he didn't say, actually missed it twice, guys. So by the way, let's all stop and just thank God that the greatest investor of all time could miss a stock twice. We should have a lot more empathy for, to your point, the process we run, the mistakes we have to make, the things we have to learn. Just one more for me before I hand it back to Justin. I want to ask you about sector concentration because, you know, some value guys will say, all right, if I think energy is cheap or a sector is really cheap, I'll go put a huge amount of my portfolio in there. And other ones will say, all right, I want to have limits. You know, I want to balance my portfolio and kind of create a smoother ride. How, how do you think about that? Yeah, we're not, we're just not big fans of saying, let, let's like kind of balance out the things by sector. Um, uh, now, why? I'll, I'll, let me give an example. If you reconstituted the old technology sector, right, before we threw a bunch of those companies into what we now know as, as uh, communication services, i.e. the old telecom bucket, and you go out and, and bring back uh, uh, Amazon out of uh, discretionary and throw it back into tech, I mean, we had a way higher tech sector in this go-round than we ever had in 99, just so we're all on the same page. Okay, I think it peaked at 47% of the, of the actual S&P 500. So I just say that because, again, it's business, the business, the business. We look at sector so little. <laughs> we look at sector so little, we'll buy a business. And unless our pre-trade compliance says, hey, you're getting close to something that you need to be aware of on a sector or industry basis based on our regulatory uh, needs, we won't even know what sector it is until we, we, we look at the, the next quarter's fact sheet. <laughs> so when we bought U-Haul, we looked and said, well, U-Haul is probably a discretionary business. No. It's an industrial. <laughs> so I, I, I just, I make fun of that because that's the kind of process we run. We're trying to find great businesses. If those happen to be aggregated in a place, no big deal. I will say we're actually, we just filed this with the SEC. We're, we have, we do have a sector concentration, or not a sector concentration, but an industry concentration. We, we, in our funds, we couldn't have more than 25%. We're proxying our shareholders to get rid of that. That was just something we had, no good reason why we put that in. And we just don't think it's to our benefit. As an example, we think we can make, fabulous money in the oil business right now. And we know that no one else wants to. So if we wake up with over 25% in, in say, per, you know, uh, consumable fuels and, and oil, which is the technical uh, geeks industry group, um, we're totally fine getting wealth in the oil business. If this was a bigger screenshot, you guys could see my cowboy boots with this suit on. And um, we, we just figure if you're going to make a lot of money in the oil business, you better look like it. So you need the cowboy hat. <laughs> <clears throat> With, with SME Capital on it. Um, I was looking at some of the uh, research posts on your site and you have one from um, basically mid-December. The title is Compa Companies Still Soiling, Soiling Themselves. 
And soil stands for stock offerings in lieu, not the other kind of soil, or maybe, doesn't it? So, so, and the idea of this is you were sort of explaining how a lot of these asset-like companies, you know, are heavily using options and stock-based compensation to compensate their employees, because we know that a lot of, you know, companies do that. But then you sort of brought it through <clears throat> to the cash flow statement and then brought it back to um, owner earnings and how you know, you need to kind of take this into consideration as an investor when looking at these companies that are using options lock. So can you just kind of shake that out a little bit more and explain that to our audience? Yeah, it's a great question. And by the way, I think this touches at really what most investors are missing. And um, so, so think about it like this. When you think about stock-based compensation, let's just say we only look at the income statement. Okay, that's all we're gonna look at, right? you would see that stock-based compensation is included in the income statement for gap accounting purposes, okay? So when you get down to your net income, that counts for stock-based compensation. But when you go to the cash flow statement, you'll see that on a true accounting basis, you add back stock-based compensation to the operating cash flow, and then when you go down to get the free cash flow, it's included. But was that free? Is that what, as an owner, I would consider free? No, it cost me a lot. In fact, um, to get up with another piece that I wrote a couple in the last couple of years, I wrote a piece where I talked about stock-based compensation as negative float, right? Buffett and Munger say, hey, isn't this great? We got this thing called float. Since we underwrite it a profit, it costs us nothing. Stock-based comp compensation is negative float because when you give away that stock and the employee takes that and sells the stock in the open market at a later date to get some of their compensation free, you aren't just paying a cash cost. You are paying the cash cost plus the future growth of the business in tow. It's terrible. So when is stock-based compensation good? If I'm at an all-time high and I'm parabolically high and I'm never gonna have that price ever again in my life, I'm gonna give all the, the stock-based compensation away I can and I could buy back the stock at a later date at a much lower price and I effectively paid my employees for pennies compared to what I paid them in stock. But when you have a great business and you give a ton of stock compensation away, you're giving the future away, okay? Um, now let's say I'm gonna go out and say, who's the virgin out there? Is there a virgin out there on stock-based compensation? Yes, Berkshire Hathaway. Go look at the stock-based compensation, it's zero. Okay, now I'm, I'm, I'm a pragmatist knowing that not every business can run themselves like that. But when people talk about stock-based uh, stock compensation and then you hear, oh, but this company's gonna buy back a lot of stock, what portion of those stock buybacks are just covering the amount of stock that's being created for employees? It's a secondary stock offering. It's treated from an accounting perspective just like a stock offering would. You're creating new shares, giving them to employees. They're vested. They have to vest. They're restricted. But once they vest, they, they look like stock that's been freely traded on a secondary offering. So I, I think there's a lot more danger in that. By the way, one more thing I'll add back to our discussion of like international investing. You won't find this abroad. You won't find this level of stock-based compensation abroad. So this is an American-style problem. We tend to do manias and, and bubbles in a way that other people don't. And I think this is added to that. So think about the business owner. Let's say two years from now, do I think a bunch of young coders will accept the same amount of compensation in stock that they were two years prior? No. No, dogs chase cars. People chase stocks. And so do employees. And when the stock turns south, they'll come and say, I don't trust the stock. I want cash. Remember, I, I grew up in Seattle in the early 2000s. You could hear the sucking sound out of Microsoft for employment talent. Why? Stock went down. 
Nobody likes to work at companies where the stock goes down. That's a good point. I wanted to um, ask you, kind of switch gears a little bit here and um, ask you a lo- a- about the macro backdrop. So I guess the first question is, I mean, you guys are bottomed up stock pickers. So how much time, you know, how much time is spent in the office talking about macro related events? Like today, the CPI number came out. You know, is that, do you guys have CNBC up and is that like a discussion point? I mean, obviously you're all very knowledgeable on the markets and what's happening, but you know, how much discussion is happening at the firm and then does that like at all play? I mean, the, the, the investment process seems very disciplined and consistent to me, which is what you want. But I'm wondering in, you know, regimes where you have inflation at a 40 year high, like, do you guys take a step back and say, okay, I don't know, some of our long duration stuff that might be a little bit more, have a little bit more growth embedded in it. You know, maybe we want to back off of some of those names. I don't know. Is there any, how does that play into like, like the question of inflation or big macro themes? Is that all coming into your thought process with these companies? Sure. It's a good question. And, and to your point, you got to remember, we, we all have to deal with an unknown outcome, right? An unknown future. And, and so trying to use this complex system we live in to try to figure these things out. So let me I'll, I'll try to be really practical with this question because it's a, it's, a, it's a good question, but it's a big question. Um, so let, let's use today. So you know, numbers come out. Um, you know, the numbers came in right at what they thought. And then what was it of interest? Well, if you go look at the services gauge, it's going through the roof, okay? So what we think we know based on all the data that's come out is A, this looks a lot like the past. When inflation picked up in the 60s and 70s, the Federal Reserve, for political reasons in some cases, and then for policy reasons in others, was unwilling to really deal people the hand that they needed to get to clean the system. We think this, that's true again, just so you guys are all on the same page. And that's a history lesson, in my opinion. That's not anything we're trying to read into the tea leaves today. Okay, But I say that because Dominantly, we, every time we look at something right now, we can see that labor's winning. I'll give you another stat that we look at and that we think this is a driver. Um, if you look at the, bank of, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta data, if you look at um, as they break out incomes, the lowest incomes in America are seeing the largest wage gains. In fact, they're seeing real wage gains on the low end of America. Okay, So let's just take that information that we know to be true and step back for one second. Okay, so... Gentlemen, our system is built to save those people when they get in tough times, right? The, the safety nets that we have built into our, our, our system are, are, are made to help those people. Okay, so let me use the Charlie Munger inversion. How bad is the economy of the United States of America when those people don't need to be saved? Okay, and, and what, I, what we find like time and time again is like everyone's sitting around saying like, well, When's the recession going to come? When's the recession going to come? This recession that we all know. And we actually think that's the foolish thing to ask because if that's going on in the labor market for the worst off, it says that, well, A, the economy is unstoppable in some respects because, yeah, what we're doing is we're firing white-collar wages. These tech layoffs, this is white-collar. These are people that can deal with those things. It's when the people that can't deal with them that we get really big problems. Other things like the, the, the banking, the, the equity out in our banks, this is not a credit crisis. This is not a banking crunch. Um, this is an asset problem. This is an asset pricing problem. Um, this is being dealt with in white collar worlds with white collar wealth. Okay, so that's how we look at this. Um, how how does that make us think about you know stock picking? I think that just helps us understand the environment we're in. Um, is this inflation going to be stickier? Yes. Does that create certain opportunities? Yes. 
uh, they're back to the the asset intensive idea. Asset intensive businesses are going to benefit more from higher inflation. Why? Because as the cost of capital rise, it's tougher to compete in asset intensive businesses because you need capital and that costs real money and that cost of money is going higher and you still have to get the time and the labor and the things to build that. And that's really tough versus if I, I click my heels like Dorothy and say, I want to create an asset light businesses in five years and inflation's running at six or the cost of capital in the 10 years at seven, I can still do that because it's asset light. And I think that's what's really being exposed right now. Asset light businesses are generally good, but what if no one enters asset intensive businesses because of high inflation and high cost of capital? That makes it more valuable to be in asset intensive businesses. And that is a risk that we're more willing to take than a lot of other value investors right now. Um, one other thing I'll add to that, uh, I don't agree. I don't agree with David Einhorn on value is one other thing I would say off that. He, he said on Bloomberg TV that it's like no one's able to do this. Kind of like we need enough people agreeing with what I just told you, gentlemen, about this backdrop and how it's creating this attractiveness in certain businesses. Like we need enough people that understand this for it to be a value. No, no, no. Price is what you pay. Value is what you get. It doesn't matter if you're the only person in the world that figures that out. Okay. You don't need a team of people to come up with this with you. You want to be the only one and have everyone else figure it out later. So we don't mind that it could be like, hey, we, we've got to look a little crazy for a while. That's our contrarianism. That's just something that plays into us. But again, stealing from other investors, that's a Sir John Templeton thing. He saw that inflation was running so high in the 1970s that, frankly, the book value of American businesses need to be restated, and he ended up being right. You woke up in the 1980s, and all those businesses he bought up in the 70s in America made him a pile of money, and no one was using that kind of exercise. Two more questions, and I'm going to pivot here again. Um, you know, one of the things that's pretty impressive with, with um, your firm is that you guys have actually experienced pretty, pretty rapid growth. I mean, I think, um, you know, I don't, I don't know how, when, when you were a billion dollars under management, but I don't think it was that long ago. It might've been like a few years ago. And now you're at, I think over 4 billion, something like that. Um, and I'm wondering, do you have internal discussions with your dad and your, your partners around capacity? And what your portfolio, you know, at what point does, um, you know, returns start to maybe be affected at what asset level? Because there, there is a balance between assets and alpha. Um, you know, you probably, although you look at Buffett, I mean, you know, maybe not. Maybe you could make the argument that, that but with most asset managers, there is. Um, so I'm just wondering, do you guys ever discuss that internally about keeping the fund open, maybe closing it? Or how do you think about that? That's a good question. So if we were having this discussion, say, five, six years ago, I would have said, yeah, you know, about $20 billion might be the mark in our U.S. equity portfolio that we would, you know, kind of close that um, because we would get liquidity constraints that we think would be real. Um, if we're having that discussion today, I would say it's lower. For all the same factors we talked about, stock returns, the liquidity of the environment, uh, we, we, I generally kind of peg it at 16 in our U.S. Internationally, there's just less liquidity outside the United States, generally speaking. So therefore, I would put that even lower number for that strategy. I would probably say it's like, as of right now, five to $10 billion would be kind of my best guess as we speak. Um, so I just say that because we're going to communicate that to people. I told you that. If you came back to me in two years and said, Cole, what does that adjust to? I'm going to tell you, well, here's where we think we are based on that number. Um, you know, I, I, we, we, there's guideposts. I mean, we can go back to history. So, you know, Don Yachman, for example, I think he peaked with $36 billion sitting on a ton of cash, okay? Um, in the kind of businesses... Uh, from a market cap and liquidity perspective that are, are very similar to what we like to own. Um, I just take heed to that. I look at that. I know that. 
Um, uh, now, by the way, ending this growth era we just had, if you, I mean, I'm not going to name names, but if you look at some of the, the, the liquidity that people were shoving into these mega cap tech stocks, I mean, where you see like concentrated managers running 30, 40, 50 billion dollars, it's like, wow. I mean, that's crazy. So I, I, I just think we're going to have very honest conversations with our investors. We'll be very open to the numbers. If they want to criticize that, it's totally fair for them to do. Cole, this has been great. I knew it was going to be a, a really uh, interesting and educational dis uh, discussion. Um, so we appreciate your time and all the thoughts you've shared with us. Um, we like to ask our guests one standard closing question, and that is based on you know, your wisdom in the markets and also how well-read you are. If you could teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? Yeah, and I, I touched on this earlier, but I, it, it's, a, it's, it's a point that I cannot, uh, I cannot uh, state enough. Um, Munger's principle of ignorance avoidance, okay? Um, you're trying to eliminate negatives in your investing life, okay? And I say that because I mentioned our eight criteria that we use for stock picking. If someone says, Cole, are you trying to think, find things that fit? No, we're trying to prove things don't. And if we can't prove it, then we might be onto something. Um, it's that negative art aspect that I think is the most important. Um, you know, it's like Buffett used to talk about. He said, you know, rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, Refer back to rule number one. He doesn't talk about that as much anymore because I think as his returns have demurred, I think he's very much you know been a lot more humble about that, and I, I I I tip my cap to him for that. But again, the idea of not doing stupid things. What was 2022? Who was doing stupid things? And that's who's being rewarded or not based on that idea. Great, thank you very much. Where can people go to learn more about you and your firm? Uh, well, uh, smeedcap.com is our website. Uh, we have our missives and our writing, some of what you, which you referred to earlier. Um, and then we have a, uh, you mentioned our podcast earlier, a book with legs podcast is out there on a bunch of the podcast services. Um, and, uh, th those are the two ways we think we can communicate and, and connect with investors. And by the way, uh, if you guys got any book uh, recommendations, I'm all ears. And also we're, we're active out on Twitter. So like at Smeedcap is our Twitter handle. My, my handle is uh, at Cole underscore Smead. Um, so if any, for any of your listeners, uh, we're all ears. We love sharing ideas and would be blessed to have any. So thank you, Cole. Thank you. Appreciate you guys' time. Thanks. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJCarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.